This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Ashley. And I'm Lacey, and this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in Illinois covering a pack of cannibalistic serial killers. And then we will talk about a possession. So buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the prairie state. In the mid to late 80s, the United States, along with other countries, experienced a satanic panic, which had parents everywhere living in fear. Because of this widespread hysteria, many men and women were arrested, convicted, and put in prison based on untrue allegations by religious crusaders. But surely something started this terror, right? The best-selling novel The Exorcist and the film adaptation majorly impacted the collective psyche surrounding demons and the occult. And around the same time, in 1972, a memoir written by Christian evangelist Mike Warnke claimed that he was involved in dark satanic worship, ritualistic sex orgies, and more. But 20 years later, it was discredited and turns out that it was all completely fabricated by him. Ritualistic killings by the Zodiac, Bundy, and Berkowitz definitely didn't help the widespread fear that was essentially a 20th century witch hunt. One of the most notorious trials stemming from the satanic panic were those of the West Memphis Three. Three teens were convicted of the horrific murders of three young boys, even though the police lacked evidence. The speculation that they worshipped Satan were outcasts and wore too much black damned them more than anything else. Often, life will imitate art, and that is even true regarding this sensationalized phenomenon. Murderers became inspired. Okay, so today I'm going to discuss a case in the early 80s that contributed to the satanic panic. So I want to say up front that this story is way more gruesome than usual. And if you feel the need to skip ahead, that's totally understandable. And also, if you ever want to know the content warnings before you listen to an episode, you can click our show notes and I list them there. Don't listen to this while you eat. <laughs> don't listen yeah. to this while you eat. Do not. What about while you drink? That might be okay, but don't eat. Okay, here we go. On May 23rd, 1981, 26-year-old, but some articles did say 28, so I'm not completely sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mother of two, Linda Sutton, went missing near Wrigley Field in Chicago, Illinois. Ten days later, her body was found in an empty field in Villa Park behind the Briar Rabbit Motel. So there were some calls regarding a foul smell in the area. Police showed up expecting to find a decomposing deer or a dead animal or something, but unfortunately that is not the case. So the body was mostly bones at this point, but they knew it was a murder because they still had handcuffs on both wrists. And a gag was in the mouth. Her sweater was still on, but her underwear was pulled down to her legs. Her socks were also still on, and they found a small amount of cash stuffed in the sock. So because of this, they ruled out robbery. So based on the state of the body, detectives believe this was a dump site and not actually where the murder was committed. They also wanted to determine how long she had been there, so they took some soil samples. So this is something I didn't know personally, but um, depending on the types of 
fluids and the amount of fluids from the body that seeps into the soil that can determine how long it's been there, or at least get a rough idea. Ew. I thought, I didn't realize that's why they took soil samples, you know? No, me either. So an autopsy revealed that Linda had been gang raped, sodomized, and her left breast had been cut off. Holy shit. Why do they have to cut her? All while she was alive. Yeah, that's the the first of many horrific things to come. Oh, jeez. Warning, warning, warning. So they also determined she had only been dead for three days. And her body was super decomposed. So they were thinking that because of her breast being removed, it left large open wounds, which made bugs, you know, get in it quickly. And that's why it looked so advanced in the decomposition. Someone had held her hostage for around five days while she was violated and tortured, then she was dumped here. There were no leads, and it never went anywhere. Well, almost a year later, on May 15, 1982, 21-year-old Lorraine Borowski, who went by Lori, went missing. Well, she worked at a REMAX office on St. Charles Road. She walked there that morning from her Elmhurst Gardens apartment. So there was a witness that said she left the apartment around 8 that morning, and her boss arrived at work at around 8.30. Well, when he got there, he noticed that the door was locked, which was weird because she was supposed to be the one, you know, that opened the office for the day. He also noticed a pair of women's shoes, makeup scattered around, and keys on the sidewalk in front of the building. He thought someone lost their purse, something like that, so he took it all inside and called the cops. So while he was waiting for an officer to swing by and pick up this stuff, he noticed that the keychain had a Remax logo on it. And he thought that was kind of strange. So he takes the keys, walks over to the front door, and it's a perfect fit. So they quickly realized it must have been Lori's. So with the help of the witness at the apartment complex, they put together a description of what she was wearing that morning and issued a bolo. Four months later, on October 10th, 1982, hunters discovered Lori's body while they were walking through the Clarendon Hills Cemetery. It appeared as though her body was dumped there and her clothes were scattered nearby. Well, an autopsy revealed she had been repeatedly raped and beaten, and her breast was also cut off. Oh my god. Yeah. So, they noticed that it looked like some type of wire had been wrapped around the breast to squeeze it tightly to cut it off. Like, that's the method that was used, a wire. And her cause of death was from an axe. Oh, my God. Yes, it's really bad. Like piano wire, maybe? Mm-hmm. How do I know that? So now we're going to go back to May, around 19 days after Lori went missing. So just 19 days after, on May 29th, 30-year-old Shuey Mack from Hanover Park was abducted. She had just moved to Illinois three years prior from Hong Kong and was working at her family's restaurant. Well, on the night of May 29th, she finished work with her brother, but they got into an argument in the car because he took a table from the restaurant, something like He took it because he wanted to paint the garage and he needs something to stand on, so they kind of got in a fight about that. Well, the fight got kind of heated, and he pulled over and told Shuey to get out of the car and ride with the parents. They'd be leaving the restaurant shortly and would see her on their way home, so he was just saying, like, they can pick you up and take you home, whatever. So he drove away, leaving her alone on the highway in Hanover Park. 
Well, when everyone got home that night, they realized Shuey was not there and she still needed to be picked up. So they drove to the spot where her brother said she got out, but they could not find her anywhere. They called the police immediately because she didn't really know much English yet. She didn't have her ID. She had no money. They did a search and put on, put out a bolo, but nope, they couldn't find her. No leads. Went cold. Until four months later, on September 30th, police were called because a woman's body was in a field in South Barrington. This was Shuey, and it was only a mile away from where she had gotten out of her brother's car. And her body was so bad that she was only recognizable by the clothes on her body. And the autopsy revealed she died from a blow to the head. Yeah, so there's going to be some overlap here because I'm talking in the order of um, when the victims went missing, not necessarily when the bodies were found, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to go back to June 13th, 1982. Angel York was attacked. So she was a sex worker and was approached for sex. So she went back with this guy to the van. Well, once she got there and got in the van, he quickly handcuffed her. And she realized there were multiple men attacking her. So one of the men handed her a knife and told her to cut off her own breast. What? Yeah. I don't think I cut my titty off. I'm just saying. She, yeah, at this point, she really wasn't given a choice. And yeah. I don't know. You might have to shoot me. I don't, I don't think I could. Could you stab yourself? Could you cut off a finger or... See, Your boob? I would normally say no, but under that, I don't, I don't know what I would do if I mean, if I thought it would save me, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. So she, she did what they said. And after she did this, he grabbed the knife and started cutting her breast more. And then he masturbated into the wound. What is wrong with you? Where do you find these cases? I did not know it was this terrible until I started getting in. I am sorry. This is, this is, I can't imagine any case ever is worse than this one. I'm just saying. It's really screwed up. <sighs> so when he finished, he put duct tape over her wound and then dumped her out on the street. Yeah. And she was still alive. I don't know how. Yeah. So she immediately called the police and gave them really good descriptions of the men, but she couldn't really remember much about the van. She didn't know the make, model, you know, any of that. So they couldn't find them and they had no leads. So two months after the attack on August 28th, the body of Sandra Delaware was found on the bank of the Chicago River. Her autopsy revealed that her body was found six hours after death. So she was stabbed, strangled, and her left breast was cut off. Her wrists were tied behind her back with shoestrings, and her bra was around her neck. So a month later, on September 8th, another body was found in an alley. This was Rose Beck Davis, a marketing executive from Broadview. The scene was similar to Sandra's. Rose was repeatedly stabbed, raped, and strangled with a sock, and her stomach had a bunch of punctures in it. And her breast was cut off. <sighs> yeah. I know. I know. Again, this stuff happened while they were alive. Oh, so I've never heard about this case. So at this point, I was just freaking out in my research. Like, surely they're going to get caught. I mean, when is it? But no, there's, there's some more victims, unfortunately. It's totally wild. So 
We're finally getting close to the killer's undoing here. On October 6th of 1982, 20-year-old, well, some articles said she was 18, so I'm not completely sure, but Beverly Washington was found near the train tracks in Humboldt Park, and she was barely alive. Someone happened to come across her body and call immediately for help. Her left breast was amputated. I'm not tired of this guy cutting off these people's breasts. I know. I was holding my chest when I was writing my notes, but she had a slash across her right one, stab wounds all over her body. It was amazing she lived, honestly, with this much blood loss. Well, she was able to retell all of the horrific details to the police down to what type of van they were driving. So she told them that a red Dodge van with tinted windows and feathers clipped to the rearview mirror, pulled up beside her, and asked her how much it would be for a date. So the driver was a thin white guy, around 25-ish years old. He was wearing a flannel shirt and boots with squared toes. He had brown hair that looked greasy, and he had a mustache. So he held a gun to her and made her get into the back of the van, and she explained that there was a plywood divider separating that part from the front where she had to go through a door. Because she got in the front and then, yeah, he made her go through a door. He forced her to eat a bunch of white pills. She wasn't sure what they were at the time. And she said the doors had been fixed so that you could not get out from the inside. Like child locks. Well, not even that. Like they um, did something special to where I don't even know if it had handles. It didn't get descriptive, but it was like made, Mm man-made. Yeah. So she couldn't get out. And there were a bunch of shelves in the back of the van with tools and electrical wiring all over them. Yeah. Mm -mm. The ceiling and the floor of the van were covered in carpet. A few hours after she was found, the same men opened fire on Rafael Torado and a man that was with him. Rafael died from gunshot wounds, and it turns out that it was a hit-for-hire situation. So this was totally unrelated to the women, but the same people. So, Beverly's description of the van was super helpful because a few weeks later, the police noticed a red Dodge van with, you know, feathers in the rearview mirror, pulled it over and questioned the driver. So, he didn't match the description because he had red hair, but the van was a perfect match. I mean, red van, feathers, plywood, carpet, electrical wire. I mean, she knew it all. Yeah, so they were convinced, okay, well tell me about this and he was immediately like whoa this isn't my van it's my boss's van i work for him in construction you know so they asked him his name was eddie spritzer to take them to his boss and his boss was 28 year old robin get g-e-c-h-t i'm glad you have weird names this time i looked up how to pronounce it and i think it's get saying it quickly you can't hear the c a bunch but I Yeah. So Robin matched Beverly's description down to the flannel shirt and boots. He was still wearing the same shirt, wearing the same square toed boots. So they searched over the van and they found a pill in the van and it was proven to be a sedative. Well, they gave Beverly a set of photos and she picked him out as the guy who attacked her. And he quickly lawyered up and they brought him in to interrogate him and he was very difficult to shake up. And they also found out that he had an interesting association with another killer, John Wayne Gacy. (laughs) What? Yes. 
Robin worked for him for a while as a subcontractor. What are the odds of that? This guy's weird. And Robin later went on to say that Gacy's biggest mistake was burying the bodies under his house. Yeah. So most listeners probably know about Gacy. Just as a super short summary, he would murder men, bury the bodies under his house, and he dressed up as a clown for charity events, but anyway. Yeah, he was a killer clown. Pogo the clown, that was his name, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Pogo the Clown. Well anyway, after Gacy was arrested, he did claim that someone worked with him on some of the murders. I didn't remember that. Mm-mm. But he he never gave them a name or anything. And so his trial was wrapping up in, I think, 1980. So this his trial got finished like almost right before these murders started, which was, give Illinois a break. So it's also worth noting that a young man that worked for Gacy turned up dead while Gacy was confirmed to be out of town. And Gacy claimed that his partner committed this murder without his consent. So it's speculated, could it have been Robin Geck? Sounds like it. So Gacy was executed in 1994, so we'll never hear it from him. Yeah. Gacy did predict that his young accomplice or accomplices would eventually become serial killers. He said to former FBI agent Robert Ressler, quote, You cannot hope to enjoy the harvest without first laboring in the fields. Ugh. Yuck. I know. So when Robin Gecht was first arrested, they had to release him because they didn't have any evidence to hold him to the crimes other than Beverly saying it was him. They did some digging and found that in 1981, Robin had rented a motel room along with a few friends and they all had adjoining rooms. So they spoke to the manager and they said that the guys held loud parties and they seemed to be involved in some type of cult. The guy gives them the names, and they happen to give them their addresses for forwarding mail. So I guess they must have been there for more than a few nights if you're giving them. Yeah. This case is weird. It is very weird. Yeah. They got the names of the other men, tracked them down. The motel rooms belonged to Robin Gett, Edward Spritzer, the redhead who was driving the van that day, and the Cocorales brothers. Thomas Cocorales was 21, like Eddie. And his brother, Andrew Cocorellis, was a few years younger, so he was about 18 years old. Edward Spritzer cracked after just a few hours of interrogation and started to confess in a 78-page statement. The first thing they noticed right off the bat is that he was majorly afraid of Robin Gecht. He rattled off all the murders he was involved with and told them about how much joy Robin got out of cutting off the breasts. He said that it took him a while to be able to do it himself after Robin would urge him to. And then he said when he would cut off the breast, Robin would force him to have sex into the wounds. Yes, it's just That's so... That's disgusting. Morbid's not even the word. It's just... So he said he witnessed Robin killing a woman with just a hammer and that it made him throw up. He also described Robin killing another woman with an axe... And went into detail about Robin would cut off the breast and then have sex with the amputated breast. What? I know, I know. Who even thinks of this? So he confessed to being a part of seven murders. And he did provide a lot of information that wasn't public or anything yet. So, you know, they 
they believed that he was involved. So while they were interrogating him, they had Robin in another room, cool as a cucumber. So they were trying to figure out a way to shake him, to make him confess. So they were like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to tell him that Eddie's in the other room, spilling it all, telling yada yada. And then they thought this would make him crack. It didn't work. It didn't phase him one bit. So they said he was still calm and collected. So what their plan was is to walk him by Eddie's interrogation room while he was confessing that that would rattle Robin. It just seems kind of strange. But anyway, that's what they did. And it backfired in a bad way. So as soon as Eddie saw Robin, he turned as white as a ghost and then started taking back all of his confessions. Yeah. He told them Robin never did anything. He never killed anyone. He wasn't involved at all. And he then he changed his story and said that Andrew Cocorales, his girlfriend's brother, killed all the women. And this happened basically as soon as he saw Robin. Yeah, very strange. The police brought in Andrew for questioning, and then he cracked quickly. He started describing the murders in details. They all matched the coroner's report, just like this other guy. Everything, even stuff they hadn't released to the public or media, they knew all the details. He confessed to being a part of the kidnapping, rape, and torture of the women. So he said they all carried knives, but would also use razors, tin can lids, and can openers to torture the women. He said they would also use piano wire on the breasts. And that they would take turns masturbating into the breasts before eating parts of them during their satanic Uh -uh. ritual. No. In total, Andrew confessed to being a part of 18 murders. Which means there's more people that we don't even, didn't even discuss. They brought in his brother, Thomas Cocorales, in for questioning and he started confessing too. All these guys are confessing except for Robin, the leader of the pack. So he also said they would take the women back to Robin Geck's place in what Robin called a satanic chapel. That's where they would eat parts of the severed breasts as a sacrament or type of communion. I know I'm getting sick of saying these same things over and over because it's so gross. But then Robin would masturbate into them and put them in a box to keep. He kept this box in his attic. So... Thomas claimed that at one point he saw at least 15 breasts in this box. I can't even imagine. I can't, I can't even comment on anything you're saying because I'm so... <laughs> just like, what's happening? <sighs> yeah, so they each called the removing of the breasts Robin's mark. Yeah. Mm-mm. Interestingly enough, the other three never mentioned Thomas's name or that he was involved. But... He was confessing himself, so didn't really matter. So at this point, all three men had confessed to something, but Robin was still claiming his innocence. Oh, goodness. So the police decide to go search Robin's home. And they found his, what he called his satanic chapel hidden in his attic. So he was married, but his wife didn't know about this attic situation going on. So there were pentagrams and swastikas spray-painted all over the walls. They also found the rifle that was used in the hit on Raphael, the guy that it was a paid-for-hire situation. Well, Robin had an altar that they would all gather around in the evening when Robin's wife was at work. 
They would also read passages from the Satanic Bible. And the detectives asked Thomas, why would you participate in something like this? And he just said Robin had the power to make them do whatever he wanted. They were all convinced Robin was supernatural and had some type of supernatural connection. I can't even process I know. It, it kind of, this has a manson vibe to it. Sounds like it. Where they were, so I don't think they were, it never mentioned them being under the influence of drugs. That was a common thing for Manson to do. But one thing was all these other guys were below average intelligence. Not meaning that that means they could get away with whatever they wanted, but they were quick to be tricked, I guess. I don't know. Not making excuses for these guys, though. So real quick sidebar, the detectives believe that the use of Satanism was just a tool used by Robin to try to control the other guys. The rituals they were performing weren't even, they weren't based in actual Satanism. It was just kind of stuff he was coming up with to try to um, control them, I guess. In fact, Satanism is most closely related to atheism instead of worshipping an actual devil. But I listened to a podcast called Stuff You Should Know, and it was about, um, I listened to an episode about the satanic panic, and then one about Satanism, and they had a really good information on this. I'm not even going to get into all that, because that's a whole other podcast. But anyway, just fun sidebar. So, the police interviewed people outside of this group, you know, like friends, women, whatever, and they all believed he had supernatural powers too. Man, these people suck. I know. (laughs) What? I can't. Mm-mm. I know. One person claimed he had the ability to draw people in and make them do his bidding. And then another person kept warning the detectives to never look into Robin's eyes directly. They were All these people were seriously convinced that this guy had supernatural powers. But when they were asked, well, what does he do? They, they didn't have an answer. You know, like he didn't actually ever do anything. They just thought he had power. It's hard for me to understand. So they looked into Robin's history and found out when he was younger, he molested his sister. And because of this, his parents sent him to live with his grandparents. And then he developed interests in weird rituals as a teen. It didn't really get into details. Initially, Robin tried to avoid going to trial completely by declaring that he was insane. Which is kind of a strange thing, in my opinion, because he's been claiming innocence. So why would you... You know, doesn't really make any sense no. to me personally. Well, anyway, multiple mental health professionals did evals, and they all determined he was sane and fit to stand trial. And real quick, I wanted to add in that the insanity defense is rarely successful and hardly ever used. I looked up the stats on this because I was curious. So the insanity defense is used in less than 1% of all court cases. And when used, only has a 26 success rate. So, very, very uncommon for people to get away with insanity, please. Anyway, Robin's first trial ended up as a mistrial. And then he had another one on September 30th, 1983. So, the prosecution laid out that the case that he was the ringleader of the other three. They presented the evidence of the rifle found in his attic. All the stuff in his attic. The trophy box that had amputated breasts. I mean... How do you explain having a box full of breasts in your own attic at your own house? I mean, do they not rot? I don't know. Do they not I don't like know. rot and look like the avocado in your refrigerator? He's claimed at this point that he didn't even know these other guys, which was also 
a terrible thing to say because they all worked for him. He, it was, you know, recorded that, yeah, on, he worked, these people worked for him. He knew them. They were his employees. So that made no sense why he was, but anyway, so multiple female witnesses took the stand, people that had been with, you know, Robin in the past romantically, and they all talked about how he tried to cut off their nipples and he would sometimes ask them to cut off their own nipples. Others said he inflicted wounds on their breasts. Robin told them that he was fascinated by the nipple and wanted to see how they worked. I know. So he should have cut his own nipples off. I wish he cut his own nipples off. Oh, Ugh, instead of doing, yeah, his fa- this fascination ended a lot of his relationships. What a shocker. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to date a guy who's... That would be the deal breaker. Boobs off now. Oh, so these women who had been with him romantically said he would stick needles into their breasts. I'm holding my boobs right now because I'm just like (laughs) it makes I just same. (laughs) Oh, wait for the blood to clot and then explore the wound. Wait, what? So he would like poke needles and you know make small stabs and then it would like clot up like a needle like a like a sewing needle or like a hypodermic needle it didn't say i'm not sure so I was he would c- stick a needle in mm-hmm. their boob mm-hmm. and then pull it out and let, let blood fill up and then he would like yeah blood fill up what are you talking well, like, about like clot up like you know around the wound it bleeds and then it stops you know so he'd like get it like it would dry up like it a would get scab yeah and then he would yeah then he would like pick the scab off this guy's a weirdo to say the least <sighs> so a lot of these women got infections from from this type of thing not to mention pain and discomfort well i don't know how you could date somebody that's constantly we'll see, wanting to stick needles in your tits we'll see they all mentioned that they were terrified of him so, so they were too afraid to tell the police he, he had something strange i don't know i i don't think he was supernatural but he definitely was good at manipulating people or scaring them into not telling I mean, he's on a him sadist. yeah he's He's a sadist. Ugh. And there are people out there that that's their jam. You should have found one of those. Yeah. And like these women were definitely not consenting Oof. to this at all. Oof. So there was also talk about how his wife, he was still married at this time, would do stuff like that. And she was terrified of him as well. Oh, God. Mm-mm. I can't imagine. Mm-mm. It's so terrible. Eddie, Thomas, and Andrew did not take the stand. And they all ended up recanting that Robin had anything to do with it. They would refuse to speak against him, and they thought he would harm them supernaturally or something if they did. So they were all willing to take the fall. I mean, they were going to get in trouble regardless, but you know what I mean. They were all, like, willing to recant everything they did, which was just, I don't even know. So... Robin took the stand in his own defense, so he was the only one of the four to talk, and he actually admitted finally to one. He's been proclaiming his innocence this whole time, and then now he says he was involved in attacking Beverly Washington, you know, the one that barely survived. He said he never killed anyone, and he was never involved in any of the other rapes and murders, just this one. What are the odds of that? Well, And yeah, and then he claimed he didn't know the men during the times of the murders, which was just false. They worked there. But anyway, the other three refused to testify and they had no evidence of Robin. That's what they said. But I'm like, okay, but these breasts in his attic, but 
You have a box of severed breasts. But they're they're saying they didn't have enough evidence, so I do not know. I don't know. I don't know. So he was only charged with rape, battery, and attempted murder of Beverly Washington. Period. Nothing else. He was not charged for anything else. He was found guilty of all these charges and sent to prison for 120 years. I mean, but what are the, what would the charges be for cutting someone's breast off? It's, I mean, like, what would you be charged with? Well, I mean, like the murders. Assault. Is it attempted murder if you cut someone's breast off? Probably because the blood loss would be so bad that. I don't know. I mean, like, if you cut someone's toe off, that's not attempted murder. She was alive and she said that he tried to kill her and he admitted to it. Okay. So he admitted to this. Okay. But he's saying he was only involved in this and none of the other ones. And they didn't have any evidence, so you know what I'm saying? So he will be eligible for parole in 2042. He'll be 88 years old at the time. Mm -mm. Now to the other three. Thomas Cocorales was convicted of the rape and murder of Lorraine Borowski and was sentenced to life in prison. Until 1986, when the state appeals court reversed the guilty verdict, citing legal errors in the original trial, and because of this, he was granted a new trial. So this time, he pled guilty and was given a 70-year sentence. In March of 2019, he came up for parole and was released from prison. He's living in Illinois today. What? Mm-hmm. Thomas's brother, Andrew Cocorales, was charged for the rape and murder of Rose Beck Davis and was sentenced to life in prison. But they weren't done. He was also brought to trial for Lorraine's murder. And he ended up changing his story several times during the trial. And sometimes he would say he had nothing to do with it. Sometimes he would say he did. But no one believed in his innocence. And this time he was sentenced to death. So on March 16, 1999, he was executed by lethal injection. It just seems strange. One guy's out. One guy gets the death penalty. You know, the charges are all over the place. But anyway, now to Eddie. Edward Spreitzer pled guilty to the murders of Shuey Mock, Sandra Delaware, Rose Beck Davis, and Rafael Torado and received a life sentence for each of these murder charges. And they weren't done with him either. On February 25th, 1986, he went on trial for Linda Sutton's murder, who was the very first victim. So he was found guilty of kidnapping and murder and was sentenced to death. So he was on death row until 2003 when Governor Ryan gave him clemency and turned his death sentence into a life sentence, which is kind of strange because this is the same governor who Andrew Cocorales was executed under. So very bizarre. Still to this day, Robin has not admitted to anything. And when he was asked by a reporter about what his obsession with breasts is, he said this. It is a thing my entire family, going back to, I'm told, to great-grandfather. Each of us men have married large-breasted women. My ex-wife is a 39D, and yes, she was very satisfying to me. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so he hasn't admitted to anything other than being obsessed with breasts, but is saying he was only involved in that, I, I, whatever. So I got a lot of my info from a greatmedium.com article written by Lisa Marie Fuqua, the Chicago Tribune, Chicago CBS News, and Murderpedia. But yeah, that is 
my case. What's happening with the ambulance outside? Are they, there's so much happening outside, outside my door. Like, your story is about a guy who cuts tits <laughs> off. There's people upstairs stomping. There's a full-blown... Where are they in the five river? Five-alarm fire across the river. What is, what is happening? So, I can't wait to get this story out of my head. And another thing, I didn't mention in my notes, but um, the women were of all races and ages. And they all have, like, double Ds? Like his it wife? It didn't say. It didn't mention that. Weird. So they were, there were Hispanic women, black women, white women, Asian women. They didn't have a specific type like most serial killers do, you know, like white women with long brown hair or whatever. It was just being a woman. Just having breasts. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. Well, my case is pretty <laughs> weird, too, so... So now that I've totally traumatized you, I can't even breathe. I can't wait to forget my case and never think of it again. Well, mine's super weird too. Really? Mm-hmm. So mine is the case of Mary Lurency Venom. Ooh. From your face, I know you've never heard of this. No. So according the Venom Venom was the last name. Venom, like a snake. V e n n u m. Interesting. Hmm. So according to Wikipedia. Watsika Wonder was the name given to the alleged spiritual possession of 14-year-old Mary Lurency Venom of Watsika, Illinois. So this happens like in the late 19th century. So Watsika is about 85 miles south of Chicago. So what do you think of when you hear the word possession? Emily Rose. Exactly. Or demons or <laughs> the movie that Linda Linda Blair vomits mm-hmm. all the green stuff yeah. up. Anyways. An exorcism, basically. Basically. So, losing yourself to something unworldly and possibly not coming back is absolutely terrifying. Not as terrifying as getting your boob cut no. off, like your case, but it's still pretty scary. Yeah. But this is not that type of possession. Sometimes, and honestly, who knew? You can be possessed by a spirit that actually wants to help you, which is exactly what happens in my story. I know, it's weird. So, Mary Lurency Venom was born in 1864. She began suffering a series of epileptic fits in the summer of 1877. Hmm. So, these fits would sometimes leave her unconscious, and after waking, she told her family that she had been in heaven and seen her brother and sister who had died. Wow. She also spoke of angels. She was also awoken by voices at night calling her by name. So, like, she would hear people mm-hmm. talking. Mm, spooky. So, these fits started becoming more frequent and lasting longer and longer, sometimes up to eight hours. Wow. Where she was just in these epileptic-like mm-hmm. fits. I know. Here's all my page turns. (laughs) Sometimes she would speak in other languages and in other people's voices. She would have personality changes and uh, her family attested to all this. They Mm. were like, yeah, sometimes she would. So anyways, doctors said there was nothing physically wrong with her, that it was all mental and there was nothing really that they could do. So, at this point, the family decides it's probably time to put her in an insane asylum for treatment. She was 15. Wow. That's awful. Yeah. 
So she wasn't harming anyone or anything. No, but she was having like these fits and talking other yeah. languages and stuff. So, you know, and they kind of, these yeah. insane asylums, you know, were like, I mean, people who were yeah. homosexual back then went to insane mm-hmm. asylums. Like that was kind of the catch all for. Yeah. Oh, and they weren't great back then. That's for sure. No. So a man by the name of Asa Roth heard about this story and decided to intervene. So he goes to Mary's parents and basically pleads with them to instead call a doctor slash spiritualist by the name of E. Winchester Stevens. So Asa was kind of a spiritualist himself. He had been through all this before. He had a daughter also named Mary. And she suffered these types of fits from birth. And no doctor had ever been able to find the cause of this. So the older she got, the more severe these became. And then she started, like, actually talking to spirits and becoming some sort of clairvoyant. Hmm. I know. So Mary Roth also began cutting herself or bloodletting. So at this point, her family and doctors agreed to put her in an asylum for better treatment. This therapy would often include the completely horrifying water cure, where they put them in scalding hot water and then into ice baths. Oh my gosh. Did you see that show on Netflix, the um, Nurse Ratchet? I haven't seen that yet, no. There's, do they do that on there? Yeah. Like I feel like in, I've seen that scene in a movie or something before. It's They have it in that in <sighs> that show, too, where they're in, like, boiling hot water, and they're stuck in this oh bath, and they put them in freezing icy water in an attempt to cure them that from... That would make oh my God. me go insane. Yeah, yeah. How could you... Oh, I can't. I can't it's even, torture. That's torture. It's torture. So... <sighs> Yeah, these were these, these were, methods. Oh, completely God. brutal. These methods were completely brutal. It was in this insane asylum that Mary would die at the age of nineteen. Mm. Her father never forgave himself and became a devout spiritualist, continually trying to contact her through seances wow. or mediums. So it's terrible. So, anyways, Doctor Stevens came and examined her, Mary Lorenzi. Mm-hmm. Later publishing the account in the Religio-Physical Journal, then in a book titled The Watsika Wonder in 1887. He described Mary as the most remarkable case of spirit return and manifestation ever recorded in history. He said that she could place her hand on a book and without seeing it would point out any letter that he named. That's pretty wild. Wow. So these spells that she was in would last, like I said, hours sometimes. One time she said she was an old woman from Germany named Katrina. So Dr. Stevens suggested that maybe she induce a good spirit. She answered back to him that several spirits were willing to help her, but ultimately she answered Mary Roth. That's right. Spirit of the dead girl invaded her body. Yeah. So Mary Roth professed to be able to help her. She said she would control her body while her soul healed. 
And when she came out of this trance, she was completely changed. So they asked her what her name was, and she answered Mary Roth. Wow. It became very clear to both families and locals that she had somehow became the other Mary who had died 12 years ago. She knew the people Mary knew. She could identify things of Mary's that she'd never seen before. And she knew all the family's secrets. She also talked about all the other times that the family had tried to reach her through mediums and seances. Wow. Once she even referred to when she cut her arm and said, but this isn't the arm that I cut. That one's in the ground. Mary Venom wouldn't have known that. Yeah. She would have had no idea. So she remained in possession of her body for 16 weeks. So over the next five months, she lived with the Roths in their family home. Really? Mm-hmm. Not the one she had lived in when she was alive, which she quickly pointed out. Like, this isn't our house. That was our house. Because they had moved from that house right. after she had died. This was where she wanted to be because it was with her family. She actually demanded to stay with them and had almost no memory of the Venoms. Wow. They continued to visit her, though, and then on May the 7th, she announced that she would be going away on May the 21st at 11 a.m., and the other Mary would be returning. Hmm. I wonder why that specific time. It, It was when she said her soul had healed and she would come back. So that day comes and she is completely grief stricken. She spends time with each family member and she's crying and she's just like, I mean, cause now she has to go back to being dead and never seeing them again. So as promised at 11 on May the 21st, Mary Lurency returned to her body and life went back to normal. Well, Better than normal because she was happy and healthy. What? She had no more strange behavior, no more epileptic fits, nothing. Did she have memories of where she was? Never said. No. She actually went on to marry three and a half years later. And then when she had her first baby, the other Mary put her into a trance to save her from the pains of childbirth. Yes. So Mary would go visit the Roths from time to time and let them do a seance where Mary Roth would enter her body so she could talk to her mom and dad and siblings. Wow. The end. (laughs) I told you it was short, but it's pretty, pretty wild. I feel like I might have heard about the story somewhere. Just the part where um, she leaves and stays at the other family's house or Mm -hmm. something. It might have been on when I was listening to something about past lives, like stories from people that claim they had past lives and how they would remember other things. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing was really interesting, too, about how they can remember things they should not know. Right. So it's just, yeah, pretty crazy. So I've listened to a couple podcasts about this and... um, Wikipedia, and there was a, oh God, I can't remember the name of it, but there was like a crazy stories from Illinois that I looked up, and 
Anyways, there are a lot of pretty insane wild stories from Illinois. Yeah, not as wild as yours. Oh yeah. I think if I would have known how terrible mine was, I might have picked something else. No, it was great. I apologize to everyone. I can't imagine any case I cover will ever be as disgusting. And that I've traumatized. I'm traumatized. Oh yeah, I know. I'm still holding my boobs. I'm just (laughs) God. No one's coming close to these. Oh, oh, lordy! Man, this felt more like a Halloween episode. It was very Halloweeny. Oh, my ice shakes in the mixed drink. I'm gonna have to look more into yours. Well, I, you said there wasn't a whole lot of information on it. I guess because it's old. Has there right. ever been a movie made on it or anything? Like, or is um, it just kind of? There is a. Ugh. I feel like it'd be a good movie. <laughs> can't remember the name of it we'll put i'll look it up and we'll post it but there was one that they talked about that was kind of a speaking of um shows or movies there's a new documentary i or i don't know what it is exactly i haven't looked that much into it but on elisa lamb the girl that was (gasps) in the elevator yes that's on netflix i believe oh my god i gotta watch it now so yeah definitely check that out i'm i'm interested to see it those videos creep me out of her Looking out of the elevator like someone might be there. Ooh, gives me chills. Check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash United States of Murder. And we're actually going to record some fun stuff tonight to put up on there. Hopefully it all goes well. We'll see. We're going to try to escape zip ties and give she, you She <laughs> is going to try to ex- escape <sighs> but zip ties. Yeah, we'll post more about that on our social and check us out on Instagram at United States of Murder and on Facebook and Twitter at US of M Podcast. If you have any fun stories or not so fun stories, you can email us at United States of Murder at gmail.com. Where are we next week? Massachusetts. Massachusetts. The Celtic State? No. <laughs> <laughs> Did they name those after? I don't think so. After basketball teams that came out with much later than when the state was. Bay State? Bay State. And as the old colony state. The hmm. Puritan State and the Baked Bean State. <laughs> All right. Well, join us next week. Bye. Hold on to your boobs. Oh, gosh. Protect them. Protect your boobs. Bye. Bye.